Today we, we come to our next um, chapter in 1 Corinthians, and we jump back to 1 Corinthians, and we really have what might be a little bit of an awkward chapter following Christmas, and the joy of the season as we, we come to a difficult chapter. And I just want to start with a couple questions. How many here are saints? Every believer should raise their hand. Remember? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Every believer is a saint. Paul, Paul calls us saints. How many here still struggle with sin? That should be every hand. <laughs> every hand. Thank you. Now, that's the tension, right? We're saints. We're called saints because of what Christ has done, because of His birth at Christmas, because He came and died on the cross for our sins. If we have accepted Him as our, our Savior, we're saints. But while we are still in this earth, we struggle with sin. And so it, with, with that tension in mind, we come to today's chapter. And, and I, I mentioned that at the beginning because we need to come humbly to today's chapter on how to deal with sin in the church. And, and not arrogantly, not pointing fingers, but humbly saying, I still struggle with sin. You do, I do, every one of us does. So how can we as a group come together to help each other with this struggle? That's what this chapter is about. By way of, of just thinking about a, an introduction, I was thinking through the Christmas holidays and, and what would have happened if, if when, Thursday night, Wednesday night, when was Christmas Eve? <laughs> Wednesday night? It feels like three weeks ago already. I don't know about anyone else. Um, what if Wednesday night you came to our Christmas Eve service and I opened it up, or maybe we should have, maybe I should say Joshua opened it up so that way I don't take the window. I opened it up and I said, you know what? We've had enough of this making Jesus the reason for the season thing. You know what? We're just going to sing jingle bells tonight. Maybe Santa Claus is coming to town. Maybe how the Grinch stole Christmas. And, and we're just going to enjoy Christmas because really trying to make Jesus and, and His birth and His death and resurrection the center of it all, isn't that just cumbersome? What would you have thought? Are you crazy? <laughs> well, yeah, but no. <laughs> okay, yeah, you would have had an immediate response, right? Anyone else, what would you have thought? Heretic. Okay, and so maybe Chris here says, you know what, that's wrong. The Bible says we, we should... We should um, be celebrating the birth of Christ. This is about Him. And so I proceed to mock Him for that view. You would, you'd be very concerned. That is such a nice way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> Some of you would tackle me and drag me outside. My dad probably first in line. <laughs> Why? Because I'm mocking what Christ came to do, right? Well, I, I, I bring that up because we're going to see that in this chapter that today's topic is about how we as a church can inadvertently mock Christmas and why Jesus came. How we can mock His death and, and his, his, his crucifixion and His resurrection, His payment for our sin. Because if Christmas was it, if that's the only time that the birth of Christ means His salvation and makes a difference in our life, and it doesn't continue, then we're mocking the very act of what He did. And in this case, in this chapter, very specifically, he came to, to, he came to defeat sin, defeat sin in our lives, defeat the, the judgment for sin. 
And so if we don't take sin seriously, we are mocking the sacrifice that He made. Does that make sense? It, I would argue, would be worse than singing Santa Claus is Coming to Town at a Christmas Eve service. Because the act of His birth, the sacrifice of His death, had no, made no difference in our church. Made no difference in our life. If we just tolerate sin, both in our lives and in our church. Maybe we just turn the other way and let, and let sin run rampant. But what we're really saying is the death, the birth and death of Christ didn't mean anything. And so we start on a serious note, and I, I start with that serious note. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5, because we want to talk about how should we view sin? How should we deal with sin as a church? And in 1 Corinthians, this church at Corinth that was living in this just, just really worldly town, and the worldliness was creeping into the church, or rather pouring into the church at times, they weren't dealing with sin. And they were allowing it to go unchecked. All the while, as we saw in chapters 1-4, through four, bragging about how spiritually mature they were. That's a problem. And so how they react to sin is an evidence of their maturity and an evidence of their walk with God, their desire to be holy. One pastor once said, what Christians do seldom shocks me. I've seen it all. I think most pastors would say that. We're sinners. He went on to say, what shocks me is how they sometimes react to what they have done. And he went on to explain more specifically how sometimes they have no reaction to sin and no reaction to what they've done because it just becomes something we tolerate, something we're used to seeing. Just like the hole in the wall at home that you might have that you know after a month you don't even see it anymore. Sometimes we can get that same way with sin and we tolerate sin. The sin Jesus came to die for. In this case, in, in the church at Corinth, one of the, the several sins they struggled with was that of sexual immorality. And they lived in a town, if you remember Corinth, was filled with sexual immorality and, and temples. And one of their largest temples was to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, right? And so one of the ways that you worshipped, that you worshipped the goddess of love, is you went and you went in with one of the prostitutes and the temple prostitutes. So that was the normal way of life in Corinth. And the church had to stand against it. But the church was failing to stand against it. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, and we come humbly, knowing we are all sinners, and we come looking for how we as a church can be holy and honoring to Christ's birth and His sacrifice. And we start with verses 1 and 2. And Paul here is writing and he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And he just gets right into it. These two verses really summarize the whole chapter. And he's going to expand from here. And, and I, just, I just have to warn you, the topic this morning, the subject matter of what's happening here, it is, it is sick. It is gross. And so we won't necessarily spend a lot of time on that, but we have to mention it. See, what, what's happening at the start is there is sin in the house and sin in the camp and of a, of a particularly despicable variety. 
And so Paul says, let's check your attitudes on that. Because if we're going to deal with sin, we have to start with the right attitude. And point number one there from these verses is sin in the church should grieve us to action to preserve the witness of God's church. Grieve is the word there. And I just have four words for us to remember. Grieve is the right attitude. So let's, let's pull apart these verses a little bit. In verse 1, it starts with, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And, and the idea of actually there, the, the wording is sort of a shock. And, and picture, you know, it would be like a parent saying, you actually want to jump off the roof onto the trampoline? Do you know that's a horrible idea? And so the actually is this shock, and I can't believe you're thinking of doing that. And Paul is using that to say, this is actually happening? I can't believe that this is happening in the church. Also, the fact that it was reported to him in another city means that this is a public happening. And that's part of his shock. That's part of his dismay. It would be like pulling up a, a pulling, turning on the news, and unfortunately this happens far too often, turn on the news and finding out some other spiritual leader is sleeping with their stepmom. That's what Paul is saying. I heard about this, guys. I can't believe it's happening. And he goes on to say that there's sexual immorality among you. And he's using a broad term there. But the idea of among you is that it's happening and you all know about it. So do you get the setting here? The setting is sexual immorality is happening in the church. They all know about it. Now it's become public. And Paul is not happy. Because God is grieved. And that word for sexual immorality, you've heard us talk about it, pornea, has to do with prostitution, has to do, it's where we get the word pornography from, and it has to do with any sexual sin that, that is beyond the, the norms of what God has allowed inside marriage. And Paul says, you have allowed sexual sin to be happening in your church. And he goes on to describe it. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. What he's describing here is a case of incest. A man is, is having, and an, an, the word has there means it's an ongoing relationship. He has an ongoing relationship with his father's wife. Probably not his mother because of the wording. Probably a stepmom. Yeah, it's even hard to talk about. This is something that w- was prohibited. It was prohibited in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18.8 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. But what is so disturbing here is that Paul said it's not even tolerated among the pagans. In Corinth, in Corinth, this behavior was out of bounds. That's got to be bad. Does that make sense? They allowed so many things. Now, if this was adultery, it would have been okay. But incest crossed the line, even for the pagans. And Paul is saying, think about that. Think about the church's witness. Think about what the pagans are thinking of you. We don't know anything about the woman. She probably was not a believer in part of the church because discipline is not suggested for her. We don't know. 
that this act was torpedoing the church at Corinth's witness to the community. Roman law was against it. And the church was turning their back and not doing anything about it. That's the next question there is, what is the church at Corinth doing about it? We read on in verse 2. And you are arrogant. So the first thing they're doing about it is being happy in their pride, in who they are. And like I said, remember chapters 1 through 4, they were proud enough to say, we're more spiritually mature than Paul or Apollos. We don't even need you guys anymore. Look at us. Look at how great we are with our walk with God. Paul is saying, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And what we see from the command to remove him is that he was allowed to be included. And so basically what they're doing is arrogantly doing nothing. They're doing nothing other than boasting. Being proud and puffed up. There's a lot of discussion of, okay, what does that mean that they were boasting? And there's really two options for how to take that phrase. And several of the phrases this morning, there's... There's just several options for how to take it. One might be that they were actually proud of the situation happening. Look at us. Look at what's happening in our midst. And we're still walking with God. Because there was an aspect, as we're going to see through 1 Corinthians, of that there was some spiritual freedom. That, hey, I'm a believer. I have my fire insurance. I can do whatever I want. Isn't that a deal? We can fill the church if that's our theology. The problem is, is it's not God's theology. And they might have been that way. We don't know. The other way that you could take being proud is, is like, and this is probably the one I would lean to, is that they were so proud of themselves that they were blind to anything happening around them. Because that, I think, fits the context of chapters 1 through 4 and where we've come into the, the book a little bit more. I also just can't even fathom being proud of incest that even the pagans look down on. Uh, And and so I I think it's more that they are proud. And, And isn't that true in our lives? When we struggle with pride, when we think we've arrived, that's when we usually haven't. That's when we usually struggle with sin so much. In fact, later in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to say, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I think he's talking to them directly. Because in their arrogance, they have refused to do what's necessary to actually be spiritually mature. Pride equals blinders in our life. And so they weren't doing anything. And I have an aside there. Why is sin hard to confront? Because why weren't they doing anything? And the pride's, pride's part of it. But why in churches in America is sin rarely dealt with? Why is it rare to hear of situations of church discipline? Why is it rare to hear of people actually holding each other accountable and confronting each other? And I think there's some real practical reasons that that are good to think about and and challenge ourselves right up front. It's uncomfortable to confront someone in our individualistic, tolerant society. It is not normal for me to go to someone and say, you know what, There's, there's some things in your life that I think aren't pleasing to God. And actually, Scripture says aren't pleasing to God. Let's talk about them. Let me help you through that. That's uncomfortable because we're, we're, what's the mantra of our society? Do not judge. 
See, you even knew it. I didn't even have to, to fish too much. Do not judge. And, and they take, they, they rip Matthew out of context where, where Jesus is talking about condemning someone. But he's not talking about saying something is right or wrong. So it's uncomfortable. Sometimes sin is hard to confront in the church because the person might be influential. Well, they're a leader in the church. I don't know if I can say anything. Or they, they do a lot at the church. If I say something, they might stop. There's some thought, and, and some of the commentators thought that maybe this individual at the church at Corinth was actually a prominent, the son was a prominent member of society. And so they were afraid to go and talk to him. I don't know if that's true. It's a possibility. I think another reason why sin is sometimes hard to confront is we don't want our own sin exposed and confronted. See, if I confront someone else, if I say, let's deal with sin and live holy lives, you might actually do the same thing to me. And my pet sin might be addressed. Sometimes in our hearts that stops us. Fourth reason why, we, why it's hard to confront is sometimes we think it's someone else's job. Sometimes we think it's someone else. Well, that's Pastor Ron. And, and do you know what? Pastor Andrew can do that too. We'll let them take care of it. They're paid. So, so they have to do the tough job. It's not what we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we see the priesthood of believers. It's every one of our responsibilities. Incidentally, these are all things I've heard in ministry, in years of ministry. Fifth one is the one that I think is usually the case. And it's usually the case for me why I hesitate. We don't want the fallout. We just don't want the hassle. People rarely respond well to discipline. And so if I bring something up in someone's life, I, I, I know there's probably going to be fallout. There's probably going to be anger. But what it really means when I don't discipline or when I don't confront, when you don't confront, is that I'm really struggling with caring enough about the church and caring enough about the person to wade in. That's the real issue. And so Paul here is angry. He is bringing up what they're, he's confronting them, ironically, for what they're doing. And this whole chapter is, is a little bit about the man caught in, in sin and the, the sin of sexual immorality. It's a lot about the church that's doing nothing about it. And so Paul here is really addressing the church. So what's the first step to dealing with sin in the church? And you see that in Paul's wording there. And you are arrogant... That's what they were. That's what they should not have been doing. Ought you not rather to mourn? Or in, in many translations, it's translated grieve. And to mourn here was the idea of, of grieving over someone that is dead. This was not just a light, oh, that bothers me a little bit. This was a deep grieving over, over a death. Over a serious issue. And so the first thing he does is you need to get your attitude right. You need to be grieving over sin. Grieving over sin in the church. And then he says that should have led you to action to remove him from among you. To remove him from fellowship. And their motivation shouldn't have been anger. 
It's not revenge. It's not punishment. The motivation is grief over sin in God's house and sin in someone's life. We grieve the person, but we also grieve what it does to the testimony of the church. In this case, it was destroying the testimony of the church. And so this idea of grieving to action is it should bother us so much that we can't not act. Double negative. We have to act on this. But we have to act with the right attitude. One of sorrow, one of grief, one of trying to resolve the situation. That's the starting point. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 gives us a little bit more on attitude. Brothers, if anyone was caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says we should do this in a spirit of gentleness, this whole process, which doesn't mean weakness. It's a resolve but it's a resolve that cares about the other person. But also to keep watch over our own hearts. And Paul then gives the required action. He should be removed from fellowship. Not vindictively, but mournfully. That means removed from relationships. Removed from participating in the body of Christ. And that sounds harsh, doesn't it? He's going to go on and explain why in the next section. But this is an ongoing open sin. A couple of principles. And and under each of these points throughout the morning, I want to just give a a couple principles of church discipline. The, The thing is, this topic is a huge topic. And we're just taking one passage and scratching the surface of it. And there's different passages that talk about different situations. But there's some principles we get out of it. And and church discipline principle number one, make sure your heart is right before confronting another. Make sure your heart is right before confronting another. That's the attitude of grieving over sin. In Matthew 7, 1-5, you can look that up this week. It talks about the, the beam in your eye and the speck in your brother's eye. It's saying make sure you are walking with God and pursuing holiness. Then you're ready to help someone else. Church discipline number two, principle number two out of this is the process changes when there is genuine repentance. And this is a a general overarching understanding. What we're dealing here is is sin that has not been repented from. We are not dealing with repented sin. We're not going back into everyone's history and saying, okay, I have a a rap sheet for you. Here's all the sins you've committed in, in 2014. Happy New Year. Let's deal with them. It's not what it's saying. Because once we've repented, it's been dealt with. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's done. It's dealt with. Paid for by the blood of the cross that we sang about this morning. That's not what church discipline is about. And I think churches miss that sometimes. And they become punitive agents that that forget the blood of Christ. But this is very specifically talking about ongoing open sin that the person is not repenting of. And and we're talking genuine repentance. So the process changes when there is genuine repentance. It changes from discipline to restoration. To bringing them back in. 
to finding ways to, to allow them to prove faithfulness again, to eventually be in ministry again. Those are just a couple of principles out of the first couple of verses. So grieve is Paul's first point. Second point, verses 3-5, through five, is address, is the word I'm using. We must be willing to follow the biblical steps and deal with sin or address sin for the offender's good. We saw the first couple of verses, it was about the witness of the church, and that should motivate us. Here it's about the person and for their good. Read at verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now keep in mind, Paul's been hearing things, and, and so Paul has been gathering evidence. And we are probably at the end of a long process here with this person. This is not the beginning, this is the end. We don't have all that. In fact, we'll see a little bit later, there probably was another letter that Paul already wrote to the church at Corinth that we don't have dealing with this in in some way. So he says, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and with the power of our Lord Jesus, and so the church is to come together, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And we should always read a verse like that with chills. But for the grace of God, go any of us. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. It's a pretty strong response, isn't it? Would you like to be the church and read this from Paul? How would you like to be the young man sitting in the church as it was read to the church? And Paul is being direct. He's being forceful because sin is serious. And the church and the believers are that important. And so what we see here is a church in the final stages of discipline. But Paul is saying you need to finish the course. You need to take the steps that the Bible prescribes, that Jesus prescribed for discipline. And just a reminder, keep your fingers there. Turn over to Matthew 18. I think it's helpful to look at those steps, remind ourselves of those steps. And these steps are are principles of how the process should happen. Every situation will look a little different. But this is the process that should happen. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And we see four steps right in those, those three verses. What happens when someone's in sin? What happens if someone's sinning against you? First step, go and talk to them privately. And I would say prayerfully, praying that they respond and that this is resolved. As it says in verse 15, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I would also suggest if you, if you pursue this, this is the time to really evaluate your own attitude and make sure what you're addressing is actually sin. Okay, this isn't, 
you know, I, I think you park your, your car too close on Sunday mornings. That's absurd, right? But there are times when, when we have preferences that we start to put on other people as sin. And this is the time to, to really evaluate that. The best way to do that is when you go to confront somebody. And, and I pray we're a church who's willing to help each other, willing to confront each other. When we go to confront each other, have Scripture. Use Scripture. Because if you can't find scriptural support for what you're, you're confronting on, you probably shouldn't be confronting on it. Make sense? And so use the authority of Scripture rather than the authority of Ron or the authority of Jim or the authority of whoever. Go and talk to him privately is the first step. Second step, verse 16, is to take witnesses. And for them, two or three witnesses represented what was legally required to prove a case. And so this would be take what you need to prove your point. Take witnesses. People that will support the charge you're making. I've had people sometimes wanting to confront somebody that said, you know, the problem is I can't find anyone that will be a witness with me to go talk to them. Red flag, red flag, red flag. That probably means, again, the issue is with you and not with the other person. Not always, but quite possibly something to consider. Third thing we see there is to bring the church into it in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And that usually means starting with the leaders of the church. In our case, it starts with the elders. And you come to the elders, and the elders work to resolve it. And then finally, the fourth step, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The fourth step is removal from fellowship. Removal from participation in church family life. Because they are, they are exhibiting by their actions that they're not part of the church family. That's the biblical steps that, that I believe Paul has in mind as he's writing this chapter to the church at Corinth. And when he writes that he has already pronounced judgment, we're at the end of that process. He's already heard the witnesses. He's already tried to address it and nothing has happened. And it is still openly being, being allowed in the church. And he is, like I said a moment ago, he is just as much addressing the, the young man as he's addressing the church and, and bringing them under church discipline for not dealing with sin. As you look through those verses back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's jump back there. We could spend a lot more time, like I said, on any, any one of these elements. I'd love to talk more about it if you'd like. But when we come back to, to 1 Corinthians 5, we see Paul pronounce judgment. And basically, he's getting them to act. He's saying, you have to address this. He says to address it together as a body when you're assembled in, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the, the verdict's already in. The assembling is not a court proceeding. It is, it is basically saying this is what we're going to do. But then he goes on at the end of verse 5, verse five and this is a vital verse. You are to, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that. And when you see a so that, whenever you see that in Scripture, I'd underline it, look at the next phrase because it's giving you the reason for doing it. 
It, it's, it's really sort of the, the punch of the passage. So that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And, and we could spend the whole time just on this verse trying to parse all the different things that each of these phrases could mean. So much has been written on it. We saw this phrase, deliver this man to, the, to Satan in 1 Timothy 1.20. And, and most likely here, some have said that, oh, this means death, um, destruction of the flesh. But how, however, when, when flesh is used in this way, it's almost always talking about sin nature and our sinful desires. And what, what Paul is saying here is expel this man from the protection of the church, put him out into the realm of Satan, and let him experience the consequences of his sin. Let him experience where this leads. And as he experience, and sin's fun at first, and consequences don't always happen at first, but ultimately it leads to a life that is unfulfilling, that is just crazy things happening. And especially in this case where he's doing something that even the, the pagan culture views as horrid. Paul's saying, put him out. Hand him over to Satan. Him, let him experience the results of his actions. Just as an aside, I, I think parents, I, I would speak to you, I think we need to have in, in a lesser degree that same approach with our kids sometimes. Protecting your kids from every consequence to their action is harming your kids. Because they don't learn. And, and we live in the last 20 years, and, and you've heard of helicopter parents, and, and the, this idea of parents coming over and really sort of resolving every trouble your child gets into, that harms our children. Because they'll just do it again, because they'll be saved from it again. That's a little bit of what Paul is talking about here. Let him go. Let him experience what he's going to experience. And in the end, the hope is that he will come back to Christ. That he will be restored so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Some say that, that he's not saved and that might represent salvation. Some say that that's representative of him coming, his spirit coming back to the Lord. Either way, it's for his spiritual growth that we're to do this. Have you thought about that? Discipline for the person's sake? It's not for our sake, not because we're angry at the sin. It's to bring them back to Christ. And so church discipline principle number three there is the ultimate goal of discipline is restoration. If that's not the goal, then it's punishment and it's not a path we should be going down. It's not our domain. That's God's domain in the church. In this case, handing over to Satan included excommunication, but also, as we're going to see, included removal of fellowship from him. The hope is that being in the world and Satan's realm will drive them back to Christ. Our constitution, our, our church constitution, it's a document that we have that's our, our bylaws. And one of the things we address in our constitution is what do we do with church discipline? What do we do when there's sin in the camp? And, and we just want to put it out there. And, and one of the phrases that we have is discipline in the church is not punishment. It is discipline. And discipline is designed to train and restore. That is a, a huge statement. And so important in any discipline that we do in the church, in our homes. 
And that oftentimes is the only method of restoration. Because sin that is allowed to fester and continue and protected is sin that will keep growing and festering and continuing. So we have to think of discipline and even discipline in the church as an act of love. I mean, is it loving to let your kids do, do whatever they want to do? No. You'll create spoiled little brats that, that aren't any good in life. It's very unloving to not discipline our kids. And Paul is saying in the church, it's the same thing. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. The goal is restoration. I read a story about two men who were fishing in a stream. That got my attention. I love to fish. And they noticed a nearby bridge was falling apart. And every vehicle that went over the bridge, another piece of wood would fall off the bottom of the bridge. And finally, and they're just fishing away, enjoying their day, finally a car goes by and they see the whole center section of the bridge, the, the, the underpinnings of the bridge just fall into the water. And they know the next car that goes over that bridge is going to crash and fall into the water. One fisherman says to the other, and I wish I could do a good southern drawl, he goes, well, we've got to do something. What would be the Christian thing to do? And the other fisherman thought about it for a minute, said, build a hospital? Think about that for a minute. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't want to do anything about it. I don't want to protect anyone from it. Once they've fallen, once the disaster has happened, then maybe I'll be there to help pick up the pieces. But what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth and to our church, to every church, is we should be telling people when the bridge is out. We should be telling people when the beams are falling off. Let's stop the problem before it happens. And the only way that happens is if we love each other enough to actually get involved in each other's lives. To actually say, you know what? I'm noticing this and this is what Scripture says. Can I help you with that? And it may be one of the scariest things we do in a relationship. But if we care about a person, it will be what we do. And I know it's hard. My personality, I don't like confrontation. I bet most of you don't. And, and sometimes my wife and family, can I say this? Sometimes my wife and family say, why do you confront us on things? And when we see you letting the other things go, and, 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 and that's something I'm working on with the other things, but my answer is, because I love you so much that I have to act. Make sense? We talk about the church being a family. What if we actually loved each other enough where we had to act and tell each other when the bridge is falling apart instead of laughing when they fall in the water? That's what church discipline's about. It's hard. It's challenging. We're to grieve. We're to address. And then the third one is we're to protect. The grieving 
deals with the witness of the church. The addressing deals with the offender's good. Protect deals with protecting God's church. Unchecked sin affects the entire church. So remove it to protect God's church. Verse 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Sort of obvious statement of the day, but Paul has just given it to him. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We don't have time to pull out every everything there, but a couple things that, that are helpful. When we think of leaven, we often think of yeast, right? And there is a difference that I'll talk about in a moment, but, but yeast is an agent that you put into dough that will spread throughout the dough and it, and it turns the sugar into carbon dioxide. And it, it's part of what makes the bread rise. I remember making bread when I was young and it would rise up and I got to punch it and all the air came out. That was carbon dioxide that came out. And a little bit of leaven, as it does this, as it digests the sugar, which is sort of weird, that, yeah, but okay, um, it's spreading and growing and eventually permeates the whole lump. So that's what leaven does. A little bit contaminates the whole thing, um, what, what um, yeast does. Leaven, part of their practice, and if you've been through the Bodine Bread Factory at California Adventure, you've seen this, um, with every batch of dough that they would make, they would pull off a little bit of the dough and set it aside and they'd cook this up and then they'd take this dough and put it in the next batch. And in so doing, it kept the process going. And then it would ferment through this whole batch and then they'd keep a little bit of that. And so that's more what, what leaven is referring to is that lump of dough that is kept over. Now what happens if that goes bad, gets some sort of, uh, of disease in it? It infects the whole rest of the night. It affects everything that follows it. And so Paul here is arguing, he's using a common metaphor for them and saying, just like that bread you make, that little piece of dough, if it's contaminated, it contaminates the whole loaf. And what he's saying is in the church, if we allow sin to go unchecked, it contaminates the whole church. This illusion that I can turn my back on someone else sinning in the church and it won't affect me, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And Satan loves to propagate that lie because then sin isn't addressed. And Paul here says, it's like bread, guys. It's like leaven. And you letting it go is infecting everybody. You know, how does sin affect us? I'd love to sit and talk about that for a while, but when we let sin go... It tends to, to multiply because someone else looks at that and says, well, his sin's okay. Hey, sin's not that bad. I can do this. And then now two people are in sin and then someone else says, hey, I can do this. And so it has a way of multiplying because we, by not dealing with it, are actually giving approval to it. Saying maybe it's okay. Church discipline principle number four there, time does not eliminate sin, it spreads it. Time alone does not eliminate sin, it spreads it. And so Paul here says it needs to be cleansed. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Your lumps. Just, you know, an encouraging word of the day. 
Pastor Ron called me a lump. Cleanse out the old leaven so you'll be a new lump, one that yeast has never been added to. As you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And he's bringing this up because are you worthy of Christ's sacrifice? He paid for sin. You are unleavened. If you add, if you add yeast back into it, you are mocking his sacrifice. You are denying his sacrifice. That's what we talked about when we started. And Paul brings them back to who they are. Act worthy of Christ's sacrifice. For us, right after Christmas, act worthy of Christmas. Of Christ's incredible gift of salvation. But we have to take action to do that. We have to be proactive to cleanse in our own lives, to cleanse in our church. And he's using here an illustration from the Old Testament that the Jews would have understood. Many of you have done a Seder with us. And at the beginning of Seder, which is celebrating Passover, do you remember what the kids were sent to do? Anyone that has done that with us? What was that? Look for the little piece of the bread. Why are they doing that? They're looking for the leaven in the house. They're, 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 they're acting out this act of cleansing. Because leaven is most commonly used in the Bible as a term for sin. And so he's saying, look for the sin in your house. And and he's bringing up that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And so we should get rid of that leaven. And and, in Egypt, as the, the, the people of Israel were being rescued from Egypt, God said, no leaven. Don't bake with it. You need to have unleavened bread so you're ready to go. It represents sin and I am rescuing you out of sin. And it's an illustration of how God rescues us out of sin. And Paul is saying, purify yourself. Oh, there's so much more we could talk about. I'll just mention one more thing. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. And he's talking about Passover followed by the the festival of unleavened bread, cleansing. But the word for celebrate there is a, is a present continuous word. And he's saying, your life continually celebrates the Passover now. It's not a once a year thing. Your life is to show what it means that Christ is the Passover lamb. I love that. And so church discipline principle number five is we need to remind people that we are confronting who they are in Christ. Remind people who they are in Christ. The last few verses and the last word in your notes, point number four, is distance. Distance. We must distance ourselves from relationships with believers that continue in sin. And this is a hard one. And there's a lot of different ways that this can be practiced and a lot of different situations that that we have to consider because it's not just a, a, a hard and fast rule. But let's read it, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And that's the letter we don't have as he's addressed this before. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. It looks as if they read that and didn't apply it to the church and only applied it to non-believers who need Christ. And so they stopped being salt and light and didn't deal with sin in the church. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality 
or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, how he talks to people, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Stop there for a moment. He's distinguishing between how we treat people in the church and how we treat people out of the church. Here's the thing. I expect non-believers to act like non-believers. They don't need my rules. They need Jesus. They need the Gospel. They need to know that He died on the cross for their sins. I need to be the one that helps tell them that. Believers, on the other hand, who are professing to be living for Christ, who are are involved in these things, and, and incidentally I've heard before, well, this passage only applies to sexual immorality. No, no, Paul pretty clearly says, ah, it's pretty much any sin that's unchecked. Believers, when they are living in sin, that's a whole different ballgame. Because if I associate with them and act like nothing's ever happened, then I'm giving approval for their sin and I'm harming them. And so Paul distinguishes between the two. He says to not associate with them or to mix up with them, to be in intimate friendships with them. He goes on to say not even to eat with such a one. And, and again, for us, that doesn't always make sense. I can go to Taco Bell with a couple of you after, after church today and we, we just have tacos. That's all it means. For them to eat with somebody was an intimate bond of friendship. It was a relationship. That idea of bringing someone into your home. In fact, if your enemy came into your home and you were feeding them for whatever reason, hospitality, and you were attacked, you would protect your enemy because they were eating with you. It's that serious of a bond. And so what Paul, when, when Paul says don't even eat with them, he's saying don't create those bonds of friendship. You must step away and allow Satan's hand on their lives, allow God to change their hearts. Incidentally, this is why Jesus was condemned by the Pharisees when He ate with tax collectors and sinners because it was an identification with. We must take care of sin among our members. Sin that is unrepented of. Sin that is open. But we also need to remember we're all sinners and we're all dealing with it. And there's a balance there. And that's why the, the, the unrepentant nature is so important to understand as part of this equation. But we do bear responsibility for each other. Church discipline principle number six is just that. We bear responsibility for our brothers and sisters in the church family. I didn't read 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's that serious. The goal is restoration. I want to end with a quick story and then we want to sing one song just to respond to this this text. A hard text right after Christmas. In high school, my my, um, sophomore year of high school, I I was really looking for, okay, what kind of friends was I going to have? How would I be accepted? And I ended up falling with the wrong crowd of of friends. And and one of the results of that is there was just a lot of sexual talk, a lot of off-color jokes, and I started to adopt that into my language. And at the same time, I had my friends that I went to church with, and so I had two little worlds and was 
existing just fine, I thought. And I can still remember one day when a couple of my friends, my two best friends actually, who were in the church group and, and walking with God, and we were walking along and they said, Ron, I have something, we, we have something we want to talk to you about. We've noticed that your language isn't pleasing to God. You're talking about things that are sin. And we care about you. We pray that you change. But if you don't, this will change our friendship. And these are my closest friends. And I had a choice at that moment. Do I fight them on it? Do I get upset that they would call me on something? Do I somehow have this false pride that they were putting themselves above me? Or do I realize that they cared enough to do probably one of the hardest things they'd ever done in their life? And because of that, my whole direction in high school changed. Whole direction. And I, and I, I ended my friendships with the other friends that were not walking with God. And I devoted myself to the, the friends and to the church and to missions trips and to things that were of God. And that changed the whole trajectory of my life because someone was willing to say, brother, that's sin. And not in a condemning way, but in a way that said, let me help you through that. My prayer is that that's the kind of church family we are. Where we're not condemning each other, but, and we realize that that we are all sinners, and so the first thing I hope we get out of this is to, to look at our own lives and say, God, cleanse me. And the second thing is that we're willing enough to, to love each other enough to confront each other and to at least have the conversation. And the third thing I hope we get out of this is to not be dispensive when someone else has that conversation with us. Because it's how we grow. It's how we change. It's why we're part of a family. God Almighty... Humble every one of us. Enough to desire holy lives, to desire to walk with You, Lord. Show me the sin in my life. Show every one of us the sin in our lives. Not to make us feel low, but because we're saints and we want to live like it. Because You are the reason for Christmas and we want to live like it. And we don't want to mock that. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that walks arm in arm, lifting each other up, addressing some of the tough things that need to be addressed, but always lifting each other up, restoring to fellowship with You and with each other. God, do a work in our church in 2015. Make us holy. Make us ready to do Your work. Clean vessels that You can use. Because we love you and we love each other. In Jesus' name, amen.